Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. So there's the surprising crowd gathering in Jerusalem, or outside of Jerusalem. It's full of people from all over Israel, from Judea and Galilee, from Jerusalem, from towns surrounding. It's one of the biggest travel days in all of Jerusalem. Uh, It's a big festival that people are coming in for. It's kind of basically like Hopkinton on Patriots Day, right? You know? There's not enough hotel rooms. There's not enough parking spots. There's way too many people in our spaces. uh, And it's getting a little unruly. And of course, everybody wants a better view. Because the crowd that's gathering isn't there because they're traveling into Jerusalem. The crowd's growing out of control because they want to see the guy who's riding on a donkey. A pretty surprising choice. For a grown man. Zechariah 9 9 says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious. Yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who still have hope. I promise this very day I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. And on that day, the Lord their God will rescue his people just as a shepherd rescues his sheep. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. I don't know if you realize, but the Israelites were a people who were desperate to be rescued. For hundreds of years, they've been praying over and over and over again for God to send the Messiah, which is the title for the guy who is going to come and to rescue them from the people who were oppressing them. Hundreds of years of praying for somebody to come and bring freedom from their oppression. And what did they have to show for it by this point? A bunch of failed attempts. A bunch of dead guys and guys who showed that they weren't actually good enough to be the Messiah. Nothing but frustration and ragged attempts at hope up until this point. Zechariah's prophecy that I just read is one of the, at this point, one of the least popular ones. Because like I just said, the Israelites wanted freedom. They didn't want peace. That's not what they were going after. They wanted something completely different than what this prophecy was telling them about. They wanted war. They wanted Rome to be overthrown. They wanted to prove that their God was more powerful than all 96 of Rome's gods that had temples scattered throughout everywhere in the known world. They wanted to show that they had not been wasting their worship, but that it was for a point. And that it was actually the thing that mattered. 
And yet, Zechariah tells us about a guy riding on a donkey, bringing peace. And so we come to this crowd, and they're gathered outside of Jerusalem, getting unruly because of a guy riding on a donkey. And they're following him because they've seen him do stuff. They've seen him do crazy miracles like raising somebody from the dead. They actually saw it happen. They've heard him teach. And the people who have heard him teach said that he's a better teacher than everybody else in all of Israel. The people who went to school for it, uh, the professors, the paid preachers, he's better than all of them. And he explains everything in ways that they don't even come close to. They've even heard, there's a rumor, that when he gets called these titles that they only give to the Messiah, that he doesn't tell people to stop. There's something different about this guy who's coming down the road sitting on a donkey. He's good and he's powerful and he's wise and he might be the Messiah, the one that they've been looking for. So for the crowd as they're following this man from the little town of Bethany to Jerusalem, they're following him, praising him because they want to know what he's going to do. They want to see him move. Because when you see how good and powerful Jesus is, the only response is to start to praise him. So let's join that crowd on that road 2,000 years ago on a day that didn't have a title back then, but that we now call Palm Sunday and see what all the fuss is about. John 12, 12. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to there. That's where we're going to be this morning. John 12, 12. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. And they shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus had entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened, and they realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason that so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. And then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Everyone's gone to his side. You know, entries into Jerusalem like this were very culturally appropriate. It was a pretty normal thing. Jerusalem's the capital city, so where does everybody go? When we have famous people, dignitaries from other governments come, where do they want to go to? Hopkinton. No, they want to go to Washington, D.C., right? It's a pretty normal spot to want to go to. You want to go, if you're rich and powerful, you want to go to the rich and powerful folks, right? That's what people want to do. 
So kings would often go into town and be cheered on like this. Crowds would gather on the side of the road and cheer them on and, and, and like celebrate whatever they had done and whoever they were. Maybe they were hoping to like, you know, get a wink and, you know, a, a fist pump. Maybe they were like hoping they would throw some coins their way. I don't know. But like this was pretty normal for kings to ride into town on horses into this sort of a space. But Jesus is riding in. Did you catch what it was called? A colt. It's a baby donkey. A grown man on a baby donkey. Like something really, really tiny for such a big crowd, right? Like there's something different about what's going on here. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor and author, writes, Here was Jesus, the king of authoritative, miraculous power, riding into town on an animal fit for a child or a hobbit. I like the hobbit toss in. Thanks, Tim. Uh, and, you know, I know some of you are like, you're, you're, you're just ready to jump to Jesus' defense. You're like, but I know Jesus was poor and he, couldn't, he didn't have a stable full of animals to be able to choose from. Like he, he took what he, you know, beggars can't be choosers, right? You know, he just had to take whatever he could. Let's think about what happened actually here for a second. So Jesus, leading up to this, he sent two of his disciples to a guy's house, specific house. And he said specifically what they're supposed to say to this guy, go and tell him that the master needs your animal or something close to that. And so he sends them to, to this house and they go and they, and they say that to the guy. And he's like, okay, here you go. Here's my baby donkey, take it. And they took it. But what that implies, if you think about that for a second, why would a stranger give his donkey away to these guys who are coming from Jesus? Why would they give him a gift like that for free? Like this donkey was valuable. It was necessary. He probably used it for farming and stuff. Like why would he give it away? Probably because he thought Jesus was worth it. Because he thought that Jesus was somebody who he just had to obey his orders because he saw Jesus as a king. And I don't know, you know, we don't have a lot of kings, so we don't have to deal with this very much, but kings can basically commandeer anything they want. They can take whatever they want. And so Jesus could have probably gone to other people with full-grown animals and asked for it if he wanted to, because he's a king, and they would listen to him. Instead, he chose to go to this guy's house and take this little donkey. You know, Jesus was treated as a king, but he obviously would not have fit in well with other kings. There was just something a little different about him. Sure, he's sovereign and he's powerful and he's just, but there's just something that's a little bit different than what we expect when it comes to Jesus. He's different from the others. We had a conversation as a staff recently about good workplaces and good bosses. Have you ever thought about like who the best leader is, the healthiest leader that you've ever served under or worked under? Pause. Think about that person. Got them in your brain, right? There's probably not a lot of options, right? Because unfortunately, there are not a ton of healthy and humble leaders out there. We can just say that without naming names. That's just the reality, right? So you can think of somebody. I was thinking about it when we were having this conversation. I thought of my first big, 
bank manager uh, when I was 18, just a little child. Uh, and uh, I was a teller there. And my manager was this really kind and encouraging manager. Um, but she also had pretty high standards for all of us. And our staff, because of how well she led, we got along really well. And we did what we had to do. Um, and so we would have people come from the main branch to work at our two empty offices because they wanted to get away from all the, all the drama and the mess and come hang out with the cool kids. So it was a good spot to be working at. She was a really good and, and kind and healthy leader. And so I mentioned that when we were talking about it, but I thought about it and I wanted to, I was like, wait, I've had a healthy leader since then. And it's one that you know. So I thought, and I didn't tell him I was going to do this. But Rob's a pretty good and healthy leader. Rob Davis, our founding pastor. Because I was thinking about it, and I was like, he is different than other leaders. Let me give you a couple of examples, just for Sarah and I. Not in that way. Liz is like, get ready, Rob, I got it. It's roast time, bring it. No, 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 not like that. Uh, About a year into Sarah and I coming on staff, he gave up about 60% of his preaching time to us pastors don't do that. (laughs) That's not normative. Like that's outside. But he did it because he felt like it was what was best for the church. And then when we were getting, when we were setting up the timeline for Sarah and I to transition to lead pastor from him, he, uh, we, we had a timing, we had a time set up. And then he said, you know, I, I feel like we need to move it forward nine months. That wasn't, beneficial for him. It's actually a risky move. He didn't know that we would hold up our end of the bargain. Just to be honest, we did, so I can say that. But like, it was a risky move. But you know why he said that he did it? Because he was praying about it and he felt like that's what Jesus wanted for the church. That is a great example of being a healthy and a humble leader. So thank you for that, Rob. Thanks for leading in that way. Jesus, likewise, wouldn't have fit with all the other royalty around. He was just too different. He was too humble. He had too much grace. He was too generous. He submitted to the authority of his father. And no king submits to anybody else, right? Like that's not a thing that kings do. The word that I would use, though, is the word meek. Jesus is too meek to fit in with all the other kings. In the original Hebrew, Zechariah 9 says that Jesus, or not Jesus, but the Messiah was going to ride in. He will be humble and lowly or humble and meek, depending on your translation, riding on a donkey. That word meek, what does it actually mean? I would say that meekness uh, as a characteristic, it means somebody that has the ability to act with power but chooses to act with mercy and grace. Somebody that has the ability to act with power, but chooses to act with mercy and grace. We often think of meekness, at least I do, I'll say I often think of meekness as like shyness or like passivity, you know, an unwillingness to act, even though you have the power. But that's actually the opposite of what it actually means. It's not acting from passivity. It's knowing that you have the power to do whatever you want to do, but choosing 
to willfully submit. That is what Jesus is like. When you see how good and powerful Jesus is, you have to praise him because he's just simply better and different than all the others. So the crowd that's followed Jesus that day, they followed him starting at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And they're following him in to Jerusalem. So Lazarus was probably, people think, a friend of Jesus from when he was younger. They had probably known each other for a couple of decades by this point. And Lazarus is a young man. He's not, he's not old at all. He's probably in his late 20s, early 30s. He's a young guy. And he suddenly died one week earlier. And as we know, whenever young people die suddenly, it shocks everybody, right? It's a pretty normal thing. And so the whole town was in shock as this happens. And so it's into that that we see their family dynamics. In their culture, when somebody died, they would spend a week mourning. And they didn't do anything else. They weren't really allowed to. Like the family just had to do, they had to mourn and grieve and that was about it. And so they would have been spending a week at their house, not doing any of the business, not even cooking for themselves. So everybody in town had to bring them food. It doesn't sound terrible, actually, when you say it like that. And then other people would like take care of their farmland and like do the stuff, the chores around the house because they just had to grieve and mourn. So everybody was in and out of their space, bringing them stuff, taking care of them. Uh, in that culture, your family, your relatives from far away would travel in to spend that time with you. Uh, if you were walking by their house during their time of mourning, you had to stop in and say hi and spend an hour with them. It probably made for some elaborate loops around so that they could actually get to where they were trying to get to sometimes. But like it took up the whole community when somebody died. And so by the time that we hear about what's going on there, when Jesus arrives in town, it's four days into this. Four days of everybody in the community coming and spending all of their time at their house supporting Mary and Martha Lazarus's sisters. And so Jesus comes to town four days late. And Martha goes and talks to him. And then she sends for Mary, and Mary comes. And Mary gets up to go see Jesus. And because it's what people did, everybody gets up with her and follows her to go talk to Jesus. Like, if she had to go to the bathroom, that could have been awkward. Like, I don't know how this all works, but we're just told that everybody got up and followed her when she went to go see Jesus. So she goes and she meets him outside of the town. And at that point, it's Jesus and his disciples and Mary and probably Martha and then this random crowd of people that are following. And Jesus starts walking. No one else knows where they're going except for him. And they walk to the tomb of Lazarus. And when they're there, it says that Jesus sees the emotion that these sisters are feeling, that people are suffering, and he just starts to weep for them. And then he stops. And he calls out to the crowd, and he said, Hey, somebody go move the stone. Tombs back then weren't in the ground like we have them. They were carved into the hillside. They were caves. And they were covered with a stone. 
And Jesus says, go move the stone off of the grave. And you can imagine that like people were like, not it. Like, I'm not doing this. This is weird. Some people were like, it's going to smell terrible. A body that's dead for four days does not smell nice. Like, this is a terrible idea and disrespectful, and I'm kind of not liking you, Jesus. But somebody goes and does it. And then Jesus, when the stone is moved, he looks to the tomb, and he calls out, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And I'm sure that there was lots of like awkward coughs and eyes that were going down because people were like, I don't want to watch this happen. This is going to be so uncomfortable. And then people start hearing gasps and they look up and there's a dead man walking out of the grave, still wearing his grave clothes, walking towards them. Shocking. Life-altering. The crowd in Jerusalem is filled with people who saw Lazarus walk out of his grave. And when you see how good and powerful Jesus is, you want to praise him for what he's done for you and what he's done for others. And so then a couple of days later, Mary and Martha decide to throw a party to celebrate their brother who's not dead anymore and to celebrate Jesus who did this crazy thing. And so they throw a party and they invite like everybody over and you can kind of like, you can picture just kind of the mob scene that's growing and Mary and Martha are like, we don't have enough food. How many people are coming? It says in John 11 that when the people heard of Jesus' arrival at the party, they all flocked to see him and Lazarus. Like it turned into a potluck because everybody had to bring food to prove that they were allowed to come. Everybody wanted to see the dead guy guy and the guy who called him out and so they're there at the tomb or not sorry they're there at their house and at one point in the evening it's like mary had been thinking like how do i thank jesus for raising my brother from the dead and for just radically changing everything in my life and she was like oh i got it i know what i'll do and it says this Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance. Normally, kings were anointed on their head. That was the normal spot to put it. And your feet were cleaned with water when you entered the house. No one would volunteer to clean your feet. That was only servants because they were nasty because you've been walking in sand and other things all day long in sandals and your feet would smell. No one was volunteering for these jobs. You had to be the lowest of the low in order to do them. And there was a custom that, and it's honestly kind of a humiliating one, that if you had excess water or oil on your feet when you were washing them, that you could take a servant's hair and wipe off the extra off of your feet. Can you imagine your hair being used to wipe stuff off of somebody's feet? I mean, that's, that's a whole nother level, right? Like, just to even have, like, just to think that you could do that with somebody else's hair says something. Like, that's crazy. But there was a little bit of precedence for that. And so what Mary does, Mary, who's not a servant, 
she gets down on her knees and she spends probably all of her money on this stuff that's all over Jesus's feet now. And then she humiliates herself by wiping the extra off with her own hair. And in that moment, she's simultaneously lowering herself and exalting Jesus to a place of extreme honor. Her worship was so extravagant and simple and humbling And honestly, we probably could all stand to use to learn a little bit from Mary about what it looks like to respect and to worship Jesus. Because the way she did it was so inspiring and humbling. And it says that the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city a large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. And they shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jerusalem has no idea. They're probably not ready for who Jesus is. But the crowds that have been following him from Galilee where he was teaching... The crowds who were at the tomb when Lazarus walked out, the crowds who were at dinner with them the night before when Mary did this extravagant, over-the-top thing are ready. Because when you see how good and powerful Jesus is, you have to praise him even if you're not sure quite what he's getting ready to do. You know, palm branches were a pretty normal thing to get thrown down in front of kings who were entering town. That was a normal uh, kind of exclamation to their cheers and to their cries. But they were always for a warrior king who was coming in because he had just won a battle. As we know with the donkey, Jesus has already said, I'm not that type of king. And yet the crowd still is trying. (laughs) They're like, no, you are. I promise you are. More palm branches, please. And they start throwing them down. The crowd wants a revolutionary who's going to defeat the Romans. And Jesus keeps saying, I'm not that king. But even though he doesn't bend to their rules and to their plans, he accepts their offering. He accepts their praise. He doesn't change who he is. He doesn't change what it is that he's up to. But he accepts the cries and adoration that's worthy of a king. I wonder what Jesus thought as he looked at their faces and saw the religious fanaticism on them. I wonder if he was having this dialogue with his father the whole time saying, what are they going to do when they find out that I'm not going to do what they want? Are they still going to want to follow me if I'm not here to do the things that they're asking me to do? Father, what, can, can you delay this a little bit? Can I have another week so that I can help them to like me before we tell them that they're not getting what they want? Like, can we spend a little bit more time before I let them down and ruin their expectations of who I am? Can I have just a little bit more time and then maybe I can win them over to what it is that we're actually up to? What will the crowd do when overthrowing Rome isn't the goal of Jesus? 
One theologian named Craig Keener wrote that the praises of the masses are good, but it's the disciples who truly submit to God's, to Christ's will, those who see his kingship through the cross, who will carry out his purpose into the world. Those who see his kingship through the cross. Friends, is that you? Are you one of those who sees Jesus' kingship through the cross? Is it me? Are we willing to let his plan look a lot different than what we thought that it was going to be? I want to give a couple of people who know that I'm doing this, and they're not going to be surprised, an opportunity to share why they want to throw palm branches down for Jesus. So Daniel and Flavia, you guys first. So I praise Jesus because last year he found me when I was lost. Uh, he rescued me. Um, he set me free from all my fears and oppression. And now I have the chance to live a completely new life in Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to stand up. Yeah. So um, I'm going to be probably more, a little longer. <laughs> so let me start by saying, uh, more than 10 years ago I was here. Rob baptized me. And, uh, you know, I was opening my business at the time. Mm-hmm. I stayed in church for about three years. And I decided to uh, just do it on my own. I said, you know, I'm, I'm my, it's my business. I wanna, I'm young. I just want to push it over. And, you know, and I'll come back when I have time. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, I left. And I, let me say, what a big mistake that was. So, um, you know, I'm a gearhead. So I say, I had my tank full. And mm-hmm. I said, let's go. You know, I'm going to. And then I'll come back and I'll get it. I'll get it ready. And, you know, that tank kept going empty, empty, empty. And I finally stopped in the middle of the highway, lost, with no fuel in it. And I was like, you know, I have to. You know, my wife was with me, and she said, you have to praise God for it. Ask for help. And I did, and I came back. And right away, Rob and a couple other people, uh, they just uh, prayed for me. And I'm saying, it's like somebody took something inside of me. And it was instant relief. Um, you know, I felt so great. And everything after that started going great in my life. You know, the peace and everything. Um, and now, even though if I don't think I'm going to make it, I know I'm going to make it because I have Jesus with me. Amen. You know? And I also want to share something. And I think it's important to share because I think it, it spoke to me. Um, two months ago, two or three months ago, I had a dream. And I was in a room with dark walls and a lot of dark people in there. Like, you know, symbols on their heads. And they didn't look, you know, apart, apart from me. And I, I was inside that room and Jesus... I could hear his voice. Daniel, get out of there. This is not for you. Get out of there. And I left, and he brought me upstairs. And I looked down, and I saw all that people. And I saw that he wanted me to take me out of there. Mm-hmm. And yesterday, I had another dream. And I was going up and down this corridor. It was like a ramp. Okay, mm-hmm. almost like a you know, big handicapped ramp. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really light up. Like lights everywhere, and then that one person was sitting in the middle of the ramp, and uh, he had a plaited shirt, hat, white beard, and I kept going by him up and down on a dream, and I was like, "Who is this guy? 
you know, so I finally, I was coming down the ramp, and I got to the corner, and I said, no, I'm going to ask if he needs help. Mm-hmm. And I said, sir, do you need help? And then he came up to me. And then uh, another thing he did is, like, what, the last time I passed by him, he did like this, and he hit my face. That's when I said, mm-hmm. I can, uh, I, that guy needs help. Mm-hmm. And I asked, sir, you need help? And he grabbed me by the hand and he brought, brought me all the way up to the, the ramp and point me to something that I don't know what it is. But I figured that Jesus wants to just take on you on his path, you know, to guide you on mm-hmm. his path. I don't know what he has for me yet, mm-hmm. but I, I think he wants to show something to me. So yeah. if, you, if anybody goes through a hard time in life, just go praise Jesus and go back to him. You Amen. know, because Amen. that's why. Here, you want to throw the first palm down in the, in the aisle? And that does mean Jesus wears plaid. So that's, that's what I took out of that. <laughs> right, and Chuck, he dresses like me. Jesus, no. Nissi, how about you? So I would say that the reason for me to throw the palm today is uh, when I just came to United States like a couple of years back for my education, I was so homesick. Um, like I was dealing with severe depression, anxiety, everything. But the only thing that God was teaching me is, even though you astray, um, thousand times I'll stay for you, and I want you to know that uh, I'm with you, and I want you to trust me with your life. Uh, and I think He was helping me so much to let me know that um, no matter how hard and how bad the things may seem now, there is always hope, and that hope is in me. So I just want to remind that to somebody here that um, there is hope in Jesus, and he can make, he can renew your heart. Yeah. Amen. There you go. Go throw your palm, Missy, over here. Marcos and Erica, why do you guys want to throw a palm? Actually, because I believe that uh, God is working in our uh, family in different levels and <laughs> that's one he's talking less right. yeah. um, the last year was so hard for us because uh, we started to having our a little things that accumulate right and um, Isabella was a diagnostic mm-hmm. with dyslexia and um, Emma has a bad time with frustration and we start to fight a lot and we we like a couple um, go deep so deep um, we start to fight like wars so but in that deep we saw we saw Jesus. Jesus said, I'm with you. I'm the center of your family. So I will take the control of that. Mm-hmm. And he put the right person, the right tools, the right uh, program for Isabella, the, gra- the, the right therapist for Emma, a Christian therapist. Um, he started to put all the things in order. You know, and he's amazing. And we, by ourselves, we never can make it. 
So that's why we are here and we are praising God. That's good. Go throw it together, guys. That's good. That's good. Okay, Joshua. Uh, well, I'm glad I wore this plaid shirt today. Right. You um, and Jesus. But yeah, I um, I turned 40 this year. Um, uh, well, yeah, and um, no, I think I think entering a new season of life, I've found myself uh, just hitting walls, more tired, um, fighting cynicism, fatigue, uh, exhaustion, and my response to that is to harden my heart, to protect myself, and yeah, I think you articulated really beautifully a definition of meekness. Uh, that Jesus uh, is a meek person. He could come in and be powerful and push me around and tell me to get my act together. Uh, but he comes gently uh, and with kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am still in the midst of this, uh, I think. But I want—I don't want to keep having a hard heart. Um, I want. I don't want to be a cynical person <laughs> or an exhausted person. I, um, yeah, I want to be a meek person, and it's that meek, kind, patient heart of Jesus that is why I want to follow Him. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Joshua. So, friends, what's your reason? Why do you want to throw a palm branch down for Jesus today? Maybe you have a crazy experience and you've seen Jesus move. And if so, throw it down and shout because it's awesome. Maybe you're in a different spot. And maybe you're in a spot like I can relate to some of what Joshua was just saying. Like for me, I think I want to throw it down because I want to choose to believe that Jesus is always going to show up and lead me to the good spots. You know, over the past couple of years, I've realized how much my body was trained in my early years to expect bad things. Both my parents died before I was 25. Uh, I had, I'm not going to say what the things that happened to our family, but they were fairly significant. There were four or five other things that were fairly significant that happened to siblings, to family uh, by that point. And so I have this like thing inside of me that my body was trained to expect every three to five years something crappy to happen. And you know what happens when you've gone three to five years? You start to like dread what's getting ready to come. And so for me, I want to take this and I want to lay it down because I'm saying that I choose to follow Jesus anticipating joy instead of anticipating death, instead of anticipating the bad things. I want to choose to follow him because that's where he leads. And so I'm setting it down for that reason. Maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe you're here and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus and I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Maybe you're like many in the crowd who on that day heard the stories 
and said, if that's actually real, then I want to follow him. And so if you're sitting here and you're like, if that's actually real, if that's actually who Jesus is, then I want to follow him. I just want to invite you to raise your hand and then I just want to pray with you. That's it. Nothing crazy. But if that's you and you're saying, today I want to choose to follow Jesus, a king who is truly different, just put your hands up and let's pray. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? I'm going to throw your hand up. Yep, I see you. I see you. Okay, let's pray. Just repeat after me and say, Jesus, I choose to follow you. In faith, I choose to believe that that's who you are, that you are kind and generous, and you don't hold your power over us, but you willfully give. And I want to follow a king like that. Change the things in me that need to be changed. Reorient my life so that I can follow you. And today I just choose to say that I love you and that I follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you raised your hand, come up to me afterwards. I'd love to give you a book about Jesus and just say, hey, worship team, come on up. There's more palm branches here on purpose. During this first song, what I want to invite you to do is whatever your reason is that you want to throw it down, come on up, grab a palm branch, throw it in the middle aisle. You can walk on them. Jesus did. So don't feel too bad about that. But throw it down. And maybe you want to say something as you're doing it. Maybe it's just an internal thing. Maybe you want to do it with a spouse or a child or whoever's with you, or you want to go grab a friend's hand and do it together. But throw it down in this kind of space of worship, giving up to Jesus the honor and the respect and the adoration that he deserves for who he is. So let's stand. I'm going to pray really quick, and then we're going to worship. We just say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, King Jesus. This space is yours. Our lives are yours. Come and move. Come and show yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.